Here we go. Hosea 11, or the end of 12, excuse me, and then into the end of 11 and then chapter 12. Uh, we've been, been looking uh, here, we've been for several weeks examining the Lord's indictments against primarily the northern kingdom of Israel. This was going back to the beginning of chapter 4, if you want to just look there briefly. This was the sort of the opening of this section of indictments that the Lord would bring against His people. We have this, these two verses that sort of summarize the, the charges. Verse 1 of chapter 4, listen to the word of the Lord. O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. Verse 2, there is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. So the the charges were uh, initially put forth at that point, and ever since this has been one long section uh, in a way of bad news for God's chosen nation with one indictment after another, uh, multiple proofs and evidences of Israel's guilt and culpability, and walking through section after section describing God's judgment, which was uh, both imminent and would be severe. But then last week we saw this sort of burst of good news. We haven't seen much good news really since we began back in chapter 4, but if you'll look there in chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, we looked at these verses um, where the Lord asks Himself, essentially poses these four questions, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Again, these were the cities of the plain that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will Settle them, plant them in their houses, declares the Lord. So not only would God not come to them in the fullness of His exterminating wrath and fury, but He would have plans to bless them in the distant future, all because of the fact that His love for Israel outlives her love for Him. And so that's, that's this sort of, when, when, when He says in verse Uh, Verse 9, for I am God and not man, it's as if the Lord is anticipating the way we think about this or would think about this, which is we've had enough, right? Forget about the promises made. Israel has broken their end of this time and time and time again. And so let's just be done with them. Let's give them up completely. And so when the Lord says, I'm not going to bring that level of fury and wrath against them. They're still, go, still going to, to be taken away to Assyria. They're still going, still going to face the consequences of their rebellion. But in this overarching sort of like canceling out the promises that God made to the nation of Israel, God says, I'm not going to do that. And oh, by the way, I know this is the way you think. So just to be clear here, I'm not like you. <laughs> I'm not like you and you're not like me. And so it's the Lord just explicitly saying there are times when we just do not understand. This is incomprehensible what the Lord is doing here. And so he just comes right out and just confronts uh, that uh, in, our, in our hearts. Um, so God would do this. He would rekindle that relationship on his own accord. He would reestablish them in the future all because of God's sovereign power and his sovereign love. So we pick this up now in Hosea chapter 11, and we, we're going to start here in verse 12. We mentioned last time that in your Bibles, verse, you have verse 12 there at the end of chapter 11, and the Hebrew text, chapter, verse 12, is actually the first verse of chapter 12. So we didn't really bring that verse up or discuss it. We just left it for this week. So we'll just pick it up in verse 12 of 11 and go right into the next chapter. It says, Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. 
Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Therefore, return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they will find in me no iniquity, which would be sin. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed festival. I have also spoken to the prophets, and I have gave numerous visions, and through the prophets I gave parables. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. But by a prophet the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave him blood guilt. Believe his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach to him. So here we have the Lord, as, as we've observed in previous chapters, offering specific indictments, uh, predicted judgments to come, and yet still evidences of God's unfailing love. Uh, but in this particular chapter, there is definitely a heavier emphasis on history, on sort of taking us back to these these uh, time, these, these, to these people and to these events and places that Israel, again, would have been familiar with. We've actually seen this already through the book of Hosea. Times along the way where Hosea uh, alludes back to some historical reference in the life of Israel, sometimes those are uh, negative associations, and so they're meant to remind them of, of previous times of judgment in, Israel, in the life of Israel. In some, in some cases, we see them used as sort of motivating things to say, you know, these are things that either you did initially or maybe the Lord did among you that should be causing you to be faithful, right, and to exhibit truth and fidelity in this covenant relationship. And so we'll see that as we go along. We're just going to walk through these verses, and, um, and we'll see some of these historical references uh, uh, pop out. So we'll just pick up here, uh, starting in verse 12. Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. So again, this is, a, uh, is a, it's an unfortunate chapter break uh, division in, in our English Bibles because it clearly begins, uh, thematically speaking, it begins an, another indictment against Israel. In fact, you'll see how that verse and then the first verse of the next chapter sort of go Go together, and so uh, tying back into verse nine of the of chapter uh, eleven, where the Lord declared that He was, you know, you'll notice there, God says that He is the Holy One in their midst. So God is saying, "Listen, I am the one that's in your midst." And then now He says that Ephraim or Israel has surrounded Him with lies, and so the Lord is in the midst of His people, but the people have surrounded the Lord with lies, meaning that she is. As a, as, a, as a nation, she has clearly displayed and exhibited this sort of wicked craftiness, which, of course, all the sons of Adam exhibit, right? You're very familiar, some of you, with Jeremiah 17, 9, which says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Uh, and so this is a, a general uh, characteristic, right, of all of humanity, that, that there's this this deceptive nature of our hearts. But sadly, Israel was characterized by this deceptive activity. Uh, In fact, the Hebrew root for the name Jacob is used here in Jeremiah 17.9 in the form, it's it's the adjective form, uh, that is is the word deceitful. And so this this association between this Jeremiah 17.9 and the the heart being deceitful and then the very name of Judah... um, uh, or Jacob himself. 
there being this, this connection between those things. And then the second half of this verse uh, is this challenging to, to translate. You'll, you'll see the difference in how the New American Standard sort of casts Judah in a negative light. Uh, but if you have the ESV, you'll see this as sort of a positive thing, right? So uh, the New American Standard uh, that Ju- makes the statement that Judah is unruly against God, uh, even against the Holy One who is faithful. And if you have the ESV, it says, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One, right? So one's taking a, a positive uh, uh, sense of this, a uh, positive uh, translation, interpretation, uh, the other taking a very negative one. Either way, even if this is cast, if, you, if you'd say, even if this is cast in a positive light, of course, we know that it's not long, right, before Judah essentially goes down this very same path. Um, so I, I think based on what we know of, of what Hosea has already said, because there's other times where Hosea will mention Judah, uh, more often to say that Judah is falling in line with the pattern that Israel, the northern kingdom, has set. Not that, they're, not that Israel, the northern kingdom, has been faithful and Judah has, uh, Judah has, has been faithful and, and, and they've exhibited this fidelity, but more often saying that they, even though their judgment will come some 135 years following this judgment upon the northern kingdom, that they are, they are guilty of, of some of these same atrocities. Then uh, chapter 12, verse 1, says, Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. And so this, again, we've see, seen references, again, along the way to the relationship that Israel had at times with Assyria, uh, bargaining with Assyria, trying to, to maintain uh, peace and security, uh, by by deal making with Assyria and, and then at other times doing this very same thing with the nation of Egypt, and so this just speaks of the vanity of that. It's so when you read that phrase, they feed on wind and pursue the wind. It ha- it just takes you to Ecclesiastes. I mean, the the phraseology there is just that this is chasing after the wind, right? This is futility. This is vanity to think that you can by your own savvy and by your own strength and, and uh, your own perceived smarts can, can, can get all these pieces in place and somehow ensure your own security. And so it's just speaking of the vanity of what Israel was do, doing, feeding or, or grazing on the wind, which is futility, deception and violence, and this, this sin of, of self-protection. Right, making deals with opposing, in this case, opposing superpowers, uh, Assyria and Egypt. Uh, he basically saying this is going to be the the thing that ultimately ultimately leads to their demise. So they've been they've been doing this deal making, taking these two very powerful nations and trying to cut a deal here and cut a deal there, and it's actually going to be the fact that they try they've got one foot. Over here and one foot over there, that's the thing that's going to ultimately sort of tear them apart. Uh, verse 2, he says, The Lord also has a dispute with Judah. So we see this abrupt mention again of Judah, which makes me think that the final verse of chapter 11 ought to be translated in a negative light because it's not as clear in the, verse, the last verse of chapter 11, but it seems to be more clear. It's easier to translate this particular Verse and it is bringing Jacob or is is bring, bringing Judah to account for these things, and then he says, "And the Lord will punish Jacob according to his ways; he will repay him according to his deeds." And then we have a historical flashback in verse three, as God challenges the nation of Israel to remember its beginning, to go back to its inception, and to go back to those gracious dealings uh, which God had with their ancestral patriarch, Jacob. So verse 3 says, in the womb, uh, so he he mentions Jacob, verse 2, and then says in verse 3, in the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity he contended 
with God. So, and again, these things are kind of crammed together. So it's like we have, we have major sections of the Old Testament, sometimes taking up two and three chapters of narrative in the book of Genesis. We have them basically as like just a, just a few words of summation and then kind of put together. And, we, and the difficulty is just finding out what's the point of condensing these things down and then putting them back to back like this. And so there's a reference here to Genesis 25, 26, and that unique feature of Jacob's birth, uh, of him uh, grasping the, uh, the heel, grasping his twin brother by the heel. Of course, later on, we know that he would bribe his, his uh, famished brother with a lunch to surrender his birthright, and then via deception, steal his father's primary blessing from Esau. And then we have a reference to, in the second half of verse 3, to a later time in Jacob's life recorded for us in Genesis 32 when Jacob wrestled uh, in all probability with, with what the Old Testament refers to as the angel of the Lord uh, or, or what is believed to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And so we have these two, two events in Jacob's life. Again, though, you see in br- even bringing up this issue of, of, um, of the, the relationship between Jacob and Esau and the deception in which he used and how this, is, this will be something that he's tying back into the deception of, of the nation itself. Verse 4, yes, so this continues that really that, that uh, narrative uh, there in Genesis 32. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Uh, and significantly in Genesis 32, 28, uh, that passage states that the, the angel said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So Jacob's personal name was changed from one meaning, which is, essentially means he, heel catcher uh, or deceiver, to one meaning <clears throat> he struggles with God or, or God's fighter. And then notice the end there of verse Four in chapter twelve in Hosea, he found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Now there's some confusion about the identities that stand behind these pronouns, he and him, um, in this particular line. But I think it's more likely that the he is God found him, which is Jacob, referring to God's pursuit of Jacob. Uh, when Jacob was on the run from his brother in Genesis 28. So Jacob has basically stolen the birthright, he's deceived his father, and then he is essentially fleeing, right, because of his brother's anger. And he goes to Bethel, and there God, God meets with him. And so it's not so much Jacob looking for God, it's more, this passage is more about God looking for Jacob, again, in the context of Jacob's deception, right? So we'll come back to this in just a moment. And then you'll notice that phrase, and there he spoke with us. So again, this is a, a, there's some debate about is it singular or plural, but some, most of them translate this with a plural. And it's just a way of bringing the message of that event into the present context of Hosea's day. So this, this was for Jacob a timely message of comfort that said, in spite of a forced departure from Canaan, he would return and none of God's promises to him would be abrogated. That's what basically happens in Genesis twenty-eight fifteen. is the Lord assures him that even though he's leaving, that he's going to return back. Okay, so again, all this is going to play into the very things that God's saying will happen in the life of Israel and what's coming for them in the Assyrian invasion, and then that, that promise of future uh, restoration. Verse 5, even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. So, so all, of, all of these historical realities, again, we'll come back to this a little bit more in a moment, but all of these historical realities set up this call to repentance in verse 6. And so as you just, if you think about this chapter, think about it in terms of, there's some historical references on the front end, and there's some historical references on the back end, and then in the middle of this chapter is this call to repentance. Verse 6, Therefore, return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. So three things here. 
The first, return to your God. It's just, it's really the word, it can be translated just as turn. Um, we translate it as return, but kind of depending on the context, right? So we know that that turning, in, the, in their case, is a turning back to God, but it can be, this term can be used to turn in different directions, if you will. So a very familiar word indicating repentance, uh, used to speak of them on, in some cases throughout their history, turning away from him, uh, or in some cases turning back to the Lord, depending on the context. And it's actually a little richer than it first appears. Um, it's literally, so you and your God should return. Or perhaps, so you, by means of your God, should or must return. Which is similar to, and if you have the ESV, how many of you have the ESV, by the way? Most, most of you, I assume, probably use that. Um, but it's similar to the, how the ESV translates this. The ESV says this, so you... By the help of your God, return. So at first glance, when you just see it, return to your God, again, that just seems like a simple command and it's on them, right? But this translation the ESV uses, that by the help of your God, you are to return, really it just, I think, brings back up a concept that we've talked about in weeks past, which is this idea that God must turn us for us to turn or return to Him. So it's just another way of sort of presenting that idea that you, you, you must, you should, you need to return. But in order to do that, that's got to come by means of God helping you to do that. So return to your God. So that's the first thing that he says here. And then he says observe, which is just a word for maintain or to keep something. Observe or keep or maintain kindness. Again, this is that word for God's kindness, his loving kindness that is undeserved and is grounded in his character. So he says you're, you're to, to observe that. In other words, you're to take that idea and that concept of the Lord's faithful kindness to you and in a sort of, on a, that's a vertical thing, right? But then you are to not simply in return of to love the Lord, but you're to exercise loving kindness horizontally, right? So just to say that if you truly love the Lord your God, you will love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? So this will be exhibited in the way that the people treat one another. Because how are the people treating one another at this point? They're lying to each other, and they're committing violence against each other, and they're committing adultery and all these things. Well, those obviously are vertical sins, right? But they're also... Sin's going this way, too, right? So they were failing in loving the Lord, but they're also failing in loving their neighbor. And so he's just saying, return to the Lord and then keep kindness and observe justice. So this is speaking of those horizontal implications of turning to God, treating others with loving kindness and justice or, or being righteous, if you will, in your dealings with others. And thirdly, wait for your God continually. Uh, That is to say, assume the posture of not a demanding, let's get on with it sort of attitude with God. Like, can we just get on with it, Lord? I mean, this sort of sense of of impatience. Uh, Rather, we're to have this, exercise this patient, uh, patient waiting upon the Lord. And it is, biblically speaking, a waiting that is tied to hope and to trust. And it's active. So this is about actively... Uh, training your heart to wait submissively upon the Lord, right? So it's not a wait of sit back and do nothing. It's actually a wait of faithful obedience to the Lord and then surrendering whatever's going on, right? Because we all have expectations about what's going to happen, okay? So we're, even if we're being faithful to the Lord and being obedient, in our minds we still have a, a, an, an idea of what we at least want to happen, right, as a consequence. And so it's this continue to be diligent, obey the Lord, but then, uh, if you will, trust God for the results. You know, in other words, surrender in your heart to whatever God does. Wait patiently for Him. This is the call. Turn, observe, and wait. But Israel's pride and wickedness resist all such calls to repentance as the next verse indicates. Verse 7, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. So we have this illustration of a, of a tradesman 
who has in his hands scales of deception, right? And he loves to oppress primarily in this context through extortion, right? And so he's, he's wheeling and he's dealing, but he's tinkering with the scales, right? So that it's always to his advantage financially, Right? So there's, there's no righteousness, there is no justice, there is no integrity in the way that he's dealing with his neighbor. Right? So it's this picture of a crooked businessman, and, that, and this, this image clearly portrays uh, or pertains to Ephraim, verse 8. And Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich, I have found wealth for myself in all my labors, they will find in me no iniquity which would be sin. So this is the boastfulness of Ephraim. Um, how, how rich I have become is basically what Ephraim is saying. Certainly not heeding the, the counsel that the Lord gave to the nation of Israel back in Deuteronomy 8. We've actually referred back to Deuteronomy 4 and 6 and 7 and 8 in various chapters along the way. But just as a reminder, he says in Deuteronomy 8, 11, before they entered into the promised land, says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery... He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, He fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and that He might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, by the way, if you're going through a trial or you're talking to somebody that is, that's a fantastic verse, right? Why this? Why is this going on? God's testing you. God's testing you so that he'll know what's going on in your life and heart. No, he already knows what's going on in your life and heart. You need to know what's going on in your life and heart, right? So he does this. He brings the test in order to humble you that he might test you and do good for you in the end. Because that's the thing we forget, right? We forget the Romans 8.28, right? The reality of that. This is for our good. And then he says, verse 17, Otherwise you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. So there Ephraim was, boasting in their wealth and their own ability to gain it, and all the while thinking that they would escape without guilt. And so it's as if they're saying, we, we, we have become rich. We are the ones that have done this. And then they're saying, as if they're saying, and there is no fault on our end, right? I mean, they will find in me no iniquity, right? So again, it's just that it's the self-deception of sin that they believe that what they have is a result of what they have done. And that even though that in and of itself is arrogant to think that, they're actually boasting that nobody could find fault. Like if people could look in and see what's actually going on, they would find them to be upright and just. And yet the comparison we just saw in the previous verse is that they're cheats, right? I mean, they're messing with the scales and they're taking advantage of people. And yet they are boasting that, hey, come take a look. You won't find anything, right? I mean, that's, that's the level of, of pride that is going on. So all the while they're thinking that they'll escape without guilt, and yet the Lord sees and the Lord knows, and He will judge them accordingly. And then in verse 9, we have another, another flashback. It says, But I have, been, I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. So once again, reminding them of the establishment of their relationship with the Lord by His grace uh, and His protection and His care for them ever since. And once again, they are going to be placed by God as they were in the wilderness, in a position of dependence, right? So this is what's going to happen as they go into judgment, right? As as they go into this captivity, it's going to remind them of what they experienced back in those days because the purpose is the same. The purpose of what happened in the wilderness when God tested them was to humble them and make them dependent. What will be the ultimate consequence of this judgment that's going to come on the nation of Israel? Eventually, dependence. 
right? Dependence in humility. And he says this, I will make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed festival. So they'll, they'll be leaving their, their perceived self-attained wealth, they'll be leaving that behind. And the Lord will send them into another wilderness wandering. Although beyond that judgment, there would be future occasions for them to remember God's care while in it and His preservation through that. But in the immediate future, judgment is coming because of their consistent rejection of God's gracious message about their sin and their need to repent delivered via the prophets. Verse 10, I have also spoken to the prophets and I gave numerous visions and through the prophets I gave parables. So the Lord, even up until the time of Hosea, was channeling through His selected mouthpieces many visions as well as messages that contained analogies and comparisons and yet Sadly, these things continue to fall upon deaf ears. Verse 11, is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. So, now not all the translations actually have this as a question, but the New American Standard, it's this, is there iniquity in Gilead? And, and, and it's, it's a rhetorical question. Yes, there is. Yes, Gilead is full of evil, and their, their syncretistic worship will come to nothing under the judgment of God. And so it's just all these places where they have set up altars and all these places where they have committed this, this um, adulterous, idolatrous worship, it's just going to be a, a piles of rocks. It's <laughs> just going to be the remnants of that because God is going to take them away. And then in verses 12 and 13... We have yet another flashback to the story of Jacob, Laban, Leah, and ultimately Rachel, as well as to the Exodus, which took place 400 years after that. Verse 12, Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. Again, this, is the, uh, and this account is found in Genesis chapters 28 to 30. and describes how the Lord graciously protected the nation's patriarch and blessed him richly. And then in verse 13, uh, but by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt and by a prophet, he was kept. So again, Hosea takes Israel back to these, these times of God keeping and preserving them. And yet Israel remained uh, incorrigible, right? I mean, just stubborn hard-hearted, resistant to all of these merciful and gracious overtures on the part of the Lord. Verse 14, Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach to him. Now, as I mentioned earlier, and as we've seen, this, this, in this chapter, there's, there's a heavier emphasis on History, but here is here is the precedent for trust. Here's the, the precedent for for obedience. And so the, the Lord is, is sort of taking them back. Again, he's done this, the Hosea has done this before, but not in this kind of sort of, if you will, concentration. But we have these three flashbacks sprinkled throughout the chapter, and sandwiched in the middle is this exhortation: return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and wait. For your God continually. So return to the Lord. By His help, return. Then keep, maintain kindness, observe justice, and wait for your God continually, patiently and actively submitting to God's promise and plan. Turn, observe, wait. And these things are all based on some precedence, some flashback, or something in Israel's history. So just go back now, think about these different, think about these different sort of uh, memories, these, these different flashbacks, these different times in Israel's history. Back to those first, the verses three to five regarding Jacob. We have Jacob lifted up here as an example and there's a question, it's sort of like, is it a good example <laughs> or is it a bad example? 
right? What, what, what principles do we distill from Jacob being held up in this way? And there's some interpretive challenges to that. Again, it's like you just have a mention of something here and then a mention of something here in his life and then this statement about, I think, the Lord, the Lord finding him, right? And so the, the, the question that you, you're sort of wrestling with as you, as you read through that, of course, you're trying to figure out how all that connects to the broader theme of, the se- of this whole section, you have this example of Jacob, and it's like, well, is he being lifted up as something that we should emulate or as something that we should avoid because there seems to be different things going on? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? I mean, is this guy the striver that he's portrayed to be, or is he the supplanter? You know, which one? I mean, who else is born grabbing his brother's heel, right? And, and, and who has the nerve to wrestle with the angel of the Lord? It's it. But these things are kind of right there together. And so the question is just, what's the point? Because if we, as we've seen these other references back to the history of Israel, it's not that we get caught up in all the details of the actual narrative itself in, in those earlier, you know, in, in Israel's earlier history. It's that the, Hosea just brings them up to just make a simple point, right? He doesn't want to necessarily go back there and interpret everything that's going on in Genesis, he just alludes to something, but then to make a, a, a similar point, sometimes the same point, or sometimes to connect to something completely different. But this is, the, I think, the point of that particular sort of taking them, taking them to this historical context, and that is this fact that God pursued him. That is what happened. In other words, as he gives the, the example of, of, of what he did at his birth and then even what he did later, but then he makes this statement about the Lord finding him in Bethel. The key to me is what is going on at that point in his life. And the thing that's going on at that point in his life is that he is fleeing. He is on the run and God comes to him. Okay? That is what happened at Bethel. And you'll remember that throughout Hosea, Bethel has been referred to as another name. Right? There's been this other term that's popped up. It's, it's, it's uh, Beth Avin, right? So it's, it's as if Hosea has been using this new name, this Beth Avin, this title to sort of make fun of them in the sense that this has become a house of wickedness, right? This has become a house of evil rather than Bethel, which means house of God. So regardless of whether you view Jacob as good or bad, I think the main thing is at the end of verse 4 where it says he found him. God, God found him. He found him at Bethel. And, 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 and thinking about how Jacob ended up there, the fact that he had just committed this deception, his brother, brother is ready to kill him, his father is, is grieving, and his mother who helped him come up with this sinful plan says you better get out of town and flee. So he's a fugitive. He's on the run. He lays his head down on a stone, and God appears to him. God pursued him at Bethel. His reaction was terror, really, awe of God. In fact, he says he, he didn't know that God was in that place. <laughs> right? so it's, it, it doesn't seem like he's looking for God, Right? So he says, he he doesn't know that God was in that place, which means God knew everything that Jacob had just done, right? God was very aware of of Jacob's life, his deception, his fleeing, and yet God pursued the fugitive. And does God reveal to him through the vision in the night that he is done with him? Does he say, because of all of that, I'm done, it's over? No. In fact, Jacob becomes another example of God's constant care and unwavering love despite what Jacob did. And you remember that line at the end of verse 4. And there he spoke with us. In other words, Hosea is holding up this historical example and says, by extension, not only are we related to him as a nation, but as God dealt with Jacob, so he is dealing with us. So in this way... Jacob is a negative example, which makes it all the more amazing. This is just another example of God leading his people to repentance by way of his kindness, right? 
So he's just taking this example of Jacob and how God came to him even while he was on the run and yet assuring them that he would return back to that place. He would actually return back to Bethel, that very place where God revealed himself. And just simply he's bringing that to this current context in Israel's life to say that judgment is coming and you're going to be swept away. But just because that's going to happen doesn't mean that I've canceled out because you're going to return because, again, it's, it's, not, begun, it's not going to be because of you, right? Because you're like Jacob. He just gave us examples of that. You're deceitful, right? You take advantage of people just like, just like he did, and yet God's kindness and his grace is unshakable. And this will be the thing that motivates the people of God to repent. Right? This, this will motivate them. So this, this is the one who appeared to him. This is the God of hosts, the God of armies. He says Yahweh is his memorial name. The Lord, the Lord pursued him even when he was off the rails. Right? So this is about the gift of God's abiding presence even when you sin. Even though Jacob was on the run and had committed this evil, yet God is faithful to him. Again, it's not saying God's going to overlook sin. It doesn't mean there's not going to be temporal consequences for sin. Not all that, but it's just saying that God, the basis of God's covenant, folks, is not your performance. Okay? The basis for God's covenant is it's his sovereign love. That is the basis for this, right? We said this in Deuteronomy. He loved you because he loved you, right? He didn't love you because of fill in the blank, because of something you did or because of some pre-existing relationship. He established the relationship to begin with because he loved. He set his love on you, right? Or as, or as Paul says in Romans, right, those whom he foreknew, which is just another way of saying those whom he foreloved, Right? Because that concept of knowing in the Scriptures is, is not just intellect, right? This is about relationship. So it's as if Paul's saying, those whom God set His love on beforehand, those are the ones He called, and those whom He called, He has justified, and those whom He has justified, He's glorified. Right? This is because of God's unshakable love and His, His covenant-keeping power. And that should trigger us. That's the thing is when we think about that, that should trigger you to turn. That should trigger you to return. That should trigger you to observe kindness and to, to observe justice. That should trigger you to wait patiently upon God. So this is about historical precedence. This is about, if you will, you could call it spiritual memory, right? It's about... Thinking back, God's taking them back to this event and, and reminding them of His presence and care and saying, don't forget that, right? Because it's wrong to forget that. It's wrong to forget where we came from, right? It's, it's wrong to do that. It's wrong to forget our life beforehand. In fact, think about this, Second Peter chapter 1 Peter's talking about these, th- these qualities, these virtues that we are to be diligently, aggressively adding to our spiritual life. He says, verse 5, Now for this very reason also applying all diligence. In your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So basically, Peter's saying, listen, if you are not diligently striving in your sanctification, if you're not diligently pursuing godliness as a, as a believer... That could be, and it is most likely because you have forgot about where you came from. <laughs> right? You have forgotten, you, you've, 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 you've had a, uh, a lapse of memory. You have forgotten about you being purified. And that's why he goes on, Therefore, brethren, verse 10, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling, 
and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in, in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. He's just saying, listen, I mean, you, you, got, you need to check your heart, right? I mean, if these things are not being added to your life, if you're not diligent in this pursuit of Christ in godliness, you need, to be, you need to be asking yourself the question, do I know him? Right? And it could be that you do, but that you have forgotten these things. Now, then you have those narrative praise psalms or songs of where the psalmist would recount the past of what all that they had done and all that God had done, and they go back and forth. And of course, these are prayers, right? These are songs to the Lord. They're prayers to the Lord. All this detail about history, right? And, and we know that God knows that history in detail. But yet the psalmist expands on that. Why do they do that if they know the Lord already knows the history? But they do it for their own souls, Right? They do it because they delight in retelling the story of the things that God did for them. And we have a tendency to forget those things. And forgetting those things can have a detrimental effect. So it's as if God is speaking through Hosea saying, Jacob represents you. Jacob was like this. Remember what his character was like and remember what I, the Lord, did. So there's this value of looking to the past. You have spiritual memory motivating repentance and warning of judgment. And then you have flashback number two. This is in verses 9 and 10. And God is calling them again to remember His character of how God behaves and how they began as a nation. And basically the Lord says, it was me, right? I called you out. I initiated it. I have been your God since the beginning. And and then there is this gift of continual revelation, right? The fact that God not only called them out, but He continued to reveal Himself to them, right? So there's the, the faithfulness of God in giving a rebellious people revelation. So even though the people were being rebellious, God continued to bring them revelation through the prophets, and so, so he says, I, the Lord, have spoken to the prophets and through them to document your sin so that you would know and to document my call to you back then and now in the present to call you to repentance. So we have this fixed truth. We have this, this thing that's outside of us, God's revelation. In fact, in our generation, the big thing is if you, you need to look within, right? Don't look within, right? There's nothing there, okay? Nothing reliable in there, okay? Deceitful, remember that, Jeremiah? The heart is deceitful and desperately sick, wicked, right? Everybody today, look within yourself. And and what the Lord is saying, look outside, right, to my objective truth, my revelation, right? Don't look inward, look truthward to this objective standard. And the thing is, Israel had that. God continued to give them this, and it's just simply by His grace. And then we have flashback number three in verses 12 and 13, referring to Jacob's pursuit of a wife. And again, in in this case, the usurper and the deceiver got deceived in that. If you remember that story and his pursuit of her, of course, he eventually did get her as a wife, but there was some deception that he was on the receiving end of in that situation. Again, the message is, Remember how I dealt with Jacob and remember how I have dealt with you. Right? This is all about God's kind providence and His powerful deliverance there in verse 13. God bringing them out. Again, God is the one that initiated that. He is the one who kept them and guarded them and protected them. So all of these past memories. And in all of that, I think the summary of all of that is simply this. Remember what your character was like, because all of these examples sort of take us back to we see the, the unbelief and the decept- deceptive heart of the people that he's referring to in these narratives, saying, remember what your character was like and remember how God treated you. So these are just example after example after example, motivating them with these memories of the kindness of God, the revelation of God, the pursuit of God, the initiative of God. And the, the, the lesson for us, folks, is we need to think about those things. 
we need to think about the character of God. Often we need to think about the promises of God in His revelation or else, here's the danger, or else we will be susceptible to that kind of, of apostasy. If we do not continue to remind ourselves of the character, our character and God's goodness and His kindness and His faithfulness and His preservation that drives us, again, not just a a flat knowledge of God, but a knowledge of God that leads us to a fear of the Lord, that then leads us to a love for God, that then leads us to trust and obey Him. If we do not remind ourselves of those things, we can fall in a very similar way, right? Why? Because of forgetfulness. And it's why the scriptures, like I said, even in the, in the New Testament, dealing with the church, so many times the writers say, remember, remember, remember these things, bring these things to mind. Revelation 2, think about this, the church at Ephesus. They're commended, but then the Lord says this, I have this against you, verse 4, that you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first. Right? <laughs> it's like this is a theme in Scripture. It goes all the way through the book of Revelation, and we can find examples of it going all the way back to Genesis, right? That we have to remind ourselves of what God has done, who we are in character. We are undeserving. Our faith, our, our love wanes. God's love and His, his covenant-keeping uh, character is, is continual, right? It does not change. And it's that, as Paul says in Romans, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. When we see the kindness of God wrapped up in those truths, it should drive us to repent. And that's really why I say verse 6 is at the sort of the crux, it's kind of the centerpiece of the chapter, because on both sides there's these, these historical accounts, but they're really all driving at one thing. These should motivate the people of God to repent. These memories should motivate them to repent. And we need to call these things to mind in our own lives uh, and rehearse the goodness of God lest we, lest we stumble and fall. So we'll stop there for today.